Hello Sunderland fans and welcome to the Raw podcast brought to you by the Sunderland Echo. My name is James Copley and I'm joined by my colleague Phil Smith. Unfortunately Sunderland's season has come to an end. We're going to come on to that a little bit later but Phil there's only one place to start really and that's the future of Sunderland head coach Tony Mowbray. It seems like it's a bit up in the air at the moment, lots of speculation. Uh, what do we actually know at this point? Yeah, I think it's quite a um, quite a complex situation, really. I, I suppose it's something that's been kind of simmering away, really, for, for probably three or four weeks. Obviously, people remember the day after the West Brom game. Um, you know, there was that slightly strange, or, or strange time, I should say, of the claims, you know, that someone might be looking at Francesco Farioli. Um, and it was sort of a bit of an odd one, you know, when Mowbray did his press conference later that week. He was very relaxed about it and he said he didn't have a problem with clubs doing succession planning, et cetera, et cetera. But it was pretty obvious at that stage that it hadn't really been, there hadn't been much of a conversation behind it between him and the hierarchy, I don't think, um, which is obviously a bit strange. That did change the following week, um, you know, when Mulberry said he did speak to Speakman um, and then it was heavily played down and they sort of moved on from there, I think. Then, of course, there was a, you know, a second report on, on the eve of the first leg against Luton Town. We sort of said that Sunderland had a three, three, um, three-man shortlist potentially to replace Mowbray. I think it's important to stress at that point that, you know, at that stage, club sources did very much indicate privately, and um, that that wasn't the case. Um, but obviously, a virtually identical report emerged yesterday, on the back of Mowbray's comments in his in his post-match press conference when he sort of alluded to that, um, that there could be some uncertainty over his future. Now that wasn't because of a conversation he's had behind the scenes. It was purely because of these reports that it kept popping up. So I think everybody's a little unsure what's going on, really. I think we all know that Sunderland, you know, will always be sort of tracking managers because of that succession planning, that emphasis on trying to identify potential options for the future through data and through analytics. There's nothing particularly unusual there. I suppose where the unusual aspect of this story comes from is that, you know, Sunderland clearly haven't, reassured Mowbray particularly well off the back of these reports and that's what's created this sense that maybe something's going on um, and Mowbray certainly doesn't feel he should have to go and knock on somebody's door and say is there anything to this because he's got another year left on his contract he's done what we would all say has been a pretty exceptional job since he walked through the door so I think understandably he sort of doesn't think it should be him who's initiating that process so I think that's although that's long-winded I think that's where we're at I think we're trying to ascertain whether you know there is substance to these stories and the reason why we're still having this conversation now is because clearly um you know Mowbray hasn't been sufficiently reassured by what he's heard behind the scenes to feel certain and that there isn't more to it and that's I guess where we're in this little period of uncertainty and that's probably where his comments on on Tuesday night came from. A couple of points I'd I'd like you to attack Phil the first one is it possible within the this five-year plan that we know about that Tony Mowbray has sort of accelerated the plan to the next level and therefore possibly accelerated himself out of you know a job? And and the second one is that is the no smoke without fire argument. This could possibly have have been quashed initially. Um, it hasn't been yet. It may well get quashed today or tomorrow. We, we, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. But I just can't get those sort of two points out of my mind. The first being that he might have done too well a job and advanced Sunderland too far in terms of this five-year plan. 
and and the second being that you know there hasn't actually been anything officially said about this yet. Yeah, I think no. Beyond, as we said, a very brief conversation that, that Mowbray had with Speakman initially, in which it was played down. And as I say, just to stress, you know, when the when this three man shortlist was initially sort of reported, which was coming up for a week ago now, it was privately denied. Um, but clearly, as I said, what the, the the phase that hasn't happened is a, is a conversation where the hierarchy has spoken to Mowbray and he's come away from it thinking, oh, okay, this there isn't anything in this of substance whatsoever. Um, and that's why we are where we are now. In terms of the first point, well, I suppose the answer would be if the decision is made, it won't be because Mowbray is underperforming. Mm. Um, and so, therefore, I guess it would be based on an assessment of of whether they feel... The, the only reason, I think, in which Mowbray goes is if they feel as if there's a viable target who's available and come get the job. And so I suppose in that aspect of it, what you say would potentially be correct, yeah. The other thing, of course, is, is that you know we're at a stage where Mowbray has been in the job for nine months now, and, and maybe there are conversations about the fit and the structure and how it's all working. That you know, to me as to everybody else, seems strange when Mowbray seems to have performed so superbly against all really the metrics that he's been at, um, asked to in terms of not just results but developing young players, developing the style of play. Um, I feel like he's he's connected really well with the supporters, which I do think is important when you when you're in charge of a club of this size as well. So it's a really strange it's a really strange scenario, I think. Um, and I think it will be interesting because you know either there's something to it and we'll find that out and and we'll see where we go from there, or there's nothing to it, and then we'll all sort of be sat back going, well, how we man how did we manage to get to that point then? Um, and I think there'll be a lot of um, a lot of learning to do if we do get to that point. So yeah, it, it's an interesting one, and, and we'll see how it shakes out in the sort of next few days. I think it's completely understandable as well that the fan reaction. We ran a, a poll on the Sunderland Echo Twitter. It was only up for a couple of hours, but it got, I think it was a couple of thousand votes, and ninety-four percent of them felt that Tony Mowbray should stay. I guess that's testament. Uh, to, to the job he's done with the striker issues, the problems in January, but also the injuries as well. I, I guess where people are, are struggling is that the way this Sunderland um, sort of transfer committee or decision makers, hierarchy, ownership, whatever whatever term you want to use, the model, they've talked about rewarding success and rewarding players and rewarding good performances. We've seen that with you know Dan Neal's new contract and, and Patterson and and you would have thought that may have extended to to the coaching staff as well. So I think that's where it feels a bit uneasy for me, even though you're always wanting to to progress and advance. It just feels to be brutally honest, it would feel very harsh on a on a man who's done very, very well. Well it it, it would be harsh. There's, there's absolutely no um there's no debate or question around that. You know, Tony Mowbray took over a team that had only just come up to League One, had made a decent start to the season, but who the aim was very much consolidation. Um, and he's spectacularly overachieved on that brief, and he's done so with significant adversity in terms of the injuries and the way the January window ended. So there's there's no really, I don't think there's even a debate there, really. It would be a spectacularly harsh decision if that's what it was. Um, again, it's, you know, you're always... It's very difficult in this stage when you're looking from the outside looking in because, you know, if, and to stress, if there was anything to it, you know, what who is the alternative? What's the plan? Mm. 
it's only when you have that information that you can start to piece things together and work work things out. But listen, from my perspective, sitting here, it would seem an incredible decision to to, to not want to go forward with Tony Mowbray. He's playing some of the best football we've seen at Sunderland for a lot of years, but arguably the best of my lifetime that I can remember. Really, um, the club seems in a good place. The players seem to love him. They clearly fight for him. Um, yeah, it, it's it it would be a it would be a, a fairly extraordinary gamble, um, I would say, and yeah, yeah, we'll we'll ha- we'll have to wait and see. But it would be it would be a huge gamble. I, th- I think you could certainly say it would be the the most surprising decision of the um, since Carol Dreyfus took over the club. I think. Yeah, it would take some good, completely different sports and contexts, but the, like the Chicago Bulls, Doug Collins, Phil Jackson thing, it's a, it's a bit like that, but on a wholly lesser scale. I'm no NBA expert, by the way, so that's just... Um, and I did watch The Last Dance on Netflix, so that's where that analogy comes from. However, less of... Um, I've, no, I've, I've absolutely no idea what you're talking about, so I'll just smile and uh, nod my oh, head. It's a great documentary, Phil. You should watch it. You should watch it. It's great. Anyway, we'll, we'll move on to Luton um, in the playoff semi-final. Phil, you were there. Gutton... I thought Sunderland, yes, they were a little bit off it, perhaps one game too far. I felt like there was a lot of tired legs out there. But on the flip side of that, I thought Luton Town, for what they set out to do, uh, their objective, how they went about it, Rob Edwards as coach, and the desire, the work rate, the, the willingness to get second balls was just absolutely sublime. And I know a lot of... Fans, pundits will comment on Luton's style. But just to flip that on its head, if Sunderland had done that in a playoff semi-final or a big game or a game against Newcastle or a game to stay in the in the league or, or, or whatever, you would be absolutely delighted with that. And I, I actually think Luton deserve a bit of credit, to be honest. Out of possession in particular, it was it was quite awesome really to watch. Um, you know, those moments where Sunderland sort of get get into a little bit of space. Ahmad picks ball. Roberts have got space to run. That's where we've seen them be so um so so dangerous really. Um but as soon as that happened, Luton were back in seven, eight players, um, and they just didn't give some of the opportunity to counter as we know they can. It was nothing short of exceptional really. Um on the ball, yeah, it was pretty direct, it was pretty basic. Um but you have to say it, it was, you know, it was a perfect strategy mm. for where this Sunderland team are. And I suppose the point I'm trying to make with the off the ball stuff is the only reason they were able to do that was because they stopped Sunderland getting hold of the ball for long periods and they kept the game in Sunderland's half. And they did that because of their work rate off the ball and the sophistication of their pressing, the organisation. Um, yeah, it was pretty direct stuff on the ball, but there was nothing simplistic about what they did off the ball. It takes a pretty extraordinary amount of organisation, um, fitness um, and of hunger really to do that. So you've got to give them credit for that. I think they will have undoubtedly benefited from the fact that their season ended slightly differently. So I think their players, because some of them will have been rested for the last day of the season and through that period, probably had a bit more in the tank at the end of two legs. Um, Clearly, their injury situation, I know they're missing Corley Woodrow, who would have been a big player for them, but nowhere near the same as Sunderland's. And those factors came into it. Um, I don't feel like Sunderland had the tools to cope with that on Mm. Tuesday night, unfortunately. Um, you know, even in the last 20 minutes, you know, you get into a stage where Sunderland were starting to see a bit of the ball and they were beginning to get the ball into Clark and Roberts, but they were finding it so difficult to get enough players into the box to trouble Luton. Um, I know Geldart had come off the pitch by that point, but we've seen that that's not really his game 
anyway over the last few months. So I just think it was a game that someone didn't really have the tools to win. Um, and I think you have got to give Luton credit for, for, for the way they executed it over the course of 90 minutes. And I think it, it was strange. It, it was quite painful to watch. I found mm. the experience yeah, yeah. of 90 minutes quite painful because it, so, it was so straight, isn't it? Stop, start. Yeah. It's one of those. Yeah, and I think it was tough to watch the players, certainly in the last 15 minutes, when you could kind of see that they didn't have, they just didn't have it in the tank to get the job done. It was quite painful to watch that because of what they've given over the course of the season. Um, but I think you have to say that, you know, when they just settled, you came away. My overriding feeling, it probably just, it, it just wasn't something's time, really. It was Luton's town, I think. You know, if you look at the journey they've been on, they are sort of two, three years ahead of Sunderland in terms of where they've been in this division and coming out of League One. And I don't feel any real sense of negativity or despondency. Um, I just think it was it was a step too far for this squad with the injuries. Even when Alicia came on, it made a difference all of a sudden. Mm, mm. You know, having someone who could win the odd header and who could put their body in and come away with it. And I thought that just kind of underlined how well Sunderland had done to get to this point without all those players, really. And it just caught up with them in the end. So I didn't feel any, I felt a sort of pain at the end of the game and during the game, but coming away from it, I think you feel pretty upbeat. Obviously, with the caveat with what we've been talking about at the start, I think there's some things to settle before you can sort of take a breath and go, OK, I'm looking forward to next season and, and know where it's going to lead. But I think it was just, it, it was just one of those nights. I think I feel like Sunderland may have peaked emotionally a bit too soon as well, as you were saying Phil Luton's preparation for this, they've known they're going to be in the playoffs for a long time. They've been able to sort of get ready for that, whereas Sundland, you could sort of argue that they're, they're peaked on the final day of the season and then in front of that big crowd at the Stadium of Light and after that, there, there just wasn't there wasn't that much left, which you can't really be too angry at them for, given what they've they've had to cope with this season and it's all if buts and maybes, of course. Mowbray mentioned if they'd have had Corey Evans in the middle, just somebody to dictate and slow with that experience and then a Ross Stewart or an Ella Sims up front where the ball would stick as you mentioned when in, in the in the final 20 minutes when Sunderland could play a bit they'd been so desperate to, to get the ball down and play for the whole game it almost felt like they were forcing it in that last 20 minutes because they were so desperate and running on fumes and and up against the physicality of Luton that it was just one of those nights wasn't it I think they've conceded is it now five goals from corners in the last four games? Yeah. I mean, if you look statistically, teams do not score from corners very regularly. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. it's actually not something that happens very often. That is an absolutely insane ratio that Sunderland are conceding from. And I don't say that as a criticism. I mm. think it underlines how faintly ridiculous the situation we ended up in because of the injuries yeah. Yeah. at the end of the season. For teams to be scoring against you at that rate from corners is like unbelievable. And I think mm. it just underlines that it was a a total, total mismatch, really. Um, you know, Luton's three goals over the two legs all came from set pieces. There's there's yeah. no other way to it's just a fact. So um it's massive. Yeah, and I <laughs> and I and I think I think it's something that Mowbray sort of spoke about in recent weeks when he was getting a lot of praise for the style of playing. You know, he certainly is someone who wants to play that way, but he has also made the point repeatedly it would look a little bit different if we had Stuart, Elise Ballard. You know, he'll always say, we well, he wouldn't be afraid to, to mix it up a bit. And, you know, it probably wouldn't be the kind of extreme style that we've seen. And we've loved it because they found a way to get results. Um, but, you know, Sunderland's approach, we talked about, you know, you're saying you can't knock Luton for the way they played. Absolutely right. And if Sunderland had had their full squad available, they would have approached the game in a very different way. I don't think they would have tried playing little sort of 
one twos and little triangles on their edge of their own box, but they had to play that high risk game. So um it was tough. It was it was it was painful to watch, but um I think when it just settles it, it it's hard to have any hugely critical thoughts really. I think I think it just mm. It was just, yeah, it, it was a game that, that the Sunderland probably weren't equipped to court with at this stage. This is the way the world works, of course, but Sunderland lost the final game of their season, the playoff semi against Luton in the second leg, and then this Mowbray talk has come along as well. It sort of overshadowed, Phil, what a great season it's been. It's been really, really, really enjoyable. Just a couple of moments, you know, the, the, the equaliser away at Watford, the goal against Redden, Jack Clark, Patrick Roberts' two goals against Redden, the winner against Redden at the Stadium of Light, the 2 0 win over Borough, the win over Blackburn on Boxing Day, you know, the, the equaliser against Watford, Patrick Roberts' stunning goal, you know, winning on the final day of the season to get in the playoffs. It's It's been a real, real good, fun ride watching fantastic football with a group of players who are really likeable, who all have good characters, shepherded by Tony Mowbray, who's done an excellent job. And it would be a shame now if if the discourse going forward into the into the rest of the month is dominated by speculation and 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 not how good a season it's been. But I guess that's how the world works a bit, isn't it? Yeah, it's how football goes. I think. Uh, I mean, I think it's also partly the the uniqueness of of the playoffs and losing in a playoff semi final because mm. it does it is an incredible almost switch because you. With one whistle, you're going from either potentially, you know, another two weeks of the season, another two weeks of hype, and and then the whistle or the other way, which it was the other night, the whistle goes and it's just like that's gone, and Ahmad's going back to Man United and oh, issues possibly. Do you know what I mean? And it's just gone like that, and you don't you don't get time to sort of process it. Whereas, I suppose if you're a team in mid table or whatever, you sort of the season winds down, doesn't it? And you have all these conversations and reflections, and or if you win at Wembley or lose at Wembley, you get a more natural sort of bask, I think. And losing in the playoffs and finals means you just don't. But it's it's been an incredible season, really. Um, you know, thinking back to, you know, for me, thinking back to even um, Watford away. Um, you know, I know we only finished two two, but Mowbray mm-hmm. chucking Bennett on, chucking Barr on. We'd barely seen these players. No, brilliant. The first time we saw Roberts and Ahmad just sort of yeah. with two right wingers, and it was all these little memories. Really, I think just that process. I think and not just. Sunderland winning championship games, which after what we've been through is amazing. But the way they were doing it, yeah. watching this kind of style develop and um, becoming more and more aesthetically pleasing, the players growing, the players enjoying it more, the players trusting themselves more. Little stuff like watching Dan Neil become this, you know, mm. this brilliant almost holding midfielder, you know, which is something that if you know 18 months ago we we knew his talent, but we 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 could never have predicted that at this level. So I think. Um, it has been an amazing season. And I told you, you get your point. It would be a shame if, you know, there, there almost wasn't that time to reflect on it and bask in it a little bit before you move forward. But the reality is, isn't it? That's that's how the game goes. Um, you know, we've done this long enough. That, that is unfortunately just, just, just how it goes. And it's partly our fault as well. We have, you know, column inches to fill and stuff happens. We have to report on it. So the agenda, I suppose, naturally moves on in a way. Uh, you mentioned two players there, Phil, just to round off the podcast. Ahmad Diallo, doesn't sound like we're going to see him in a Sunderland shirt next season now, probably destined for a chance at Manchester United or alone at a, a top club playing in a, a top division, which is a shame for what he's brought to the club. Just a word on him and then a word on Edouard Michu as well. What's his situation? Just looking at his tweet last night, sort of sounded like a goodbye tweet to me or read like a goodbye tweet. 
It did, yeah, but you gotta be very careful sort of speculating overly on that, other than it did appear to be that way. I think with uh, it's it's a tricky one with Mishu, isn't it? I, I said this a few months ago when even when Mishu was in the team and doing really well. Is Mishu potentially great value for Sunderland? 100 percent Um there's no doubt about it, he could make you a massive return on that. What we also said at the time, which I think is worth bearing repeating as well, is that we don't know what Sunderland's budget is. And if that sort of fee that's been agreed last year is going to be a significant chunk of that budget, you also have to consider the other positions that need filling and the fact that centre midfield and certainly those technical number eights is a position in which Sunderland's very, very strong. And we've seen that in recent weeks because Mishu hasn't been able to get into the team because Equid's hit a, um, a fantastic batch of form. You potentially chuck Jay Matete into that. Potentially Joe Bellingham, who it appears there could be a good chance something they're going to sign this summer. So I'm not saying they're definitely not going to sign Mishy, but I think you know when Mowbray spoke about it a few weeks ago, he said, "Look, it's a two-way conversation between the club and also with Mishy and his game time. Is he happy?" Um, and that those are the conversations that will be happening now. Um, but yeah, as I've said all along, it's not quite as simple as is Mishy counted. Yes, so we'll do it. I think there's a lot of factors to come into it. Um, and yeah, like you say, it's one of the many things where we probably need a little bit more, a little bit more clarity and a little bit more time before we can step back and sort of make an assessment on what will happen. I am muted, rookie mistake. It's set to be an interesting couple of days and an interesting couple of weeks into the summer for Sunderland. There'll be lots of transfer stuff. Phil mentioned the Meet You situation. We'll keep you abreast of that. And, of course, the latest on Tony Mowbray. It's all over there at the Sunderland Echo website. Phil, thank you for joining us. Time to get back to work, I think. Yeah, always a pleasure. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>